Jim, we appreciate uh, you playing for us this morning. God bless you. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1, page 1125, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. talking with somebody before the service about our trek through Romans here and they were saying that, uh, boy, we're really uh, going deep and uh, sometimes it's a little uh, difficult, even a little bit over their head perhaps. And uh, I acknowledge it's deep, but if you're going to build a skyscraper, you need to dig a deep foundation. And the gospel is a skyscraper that reaches all the way to heaven. So we need a pretty solid foundation underneath it. And the Apostle Paul gives us that solid foundation here in these early chapters of the book of Romans. This uh, section, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and we will be here for quite a while, is a very deep, dark, and dismal section of Scripture. There is no question about that. It is the catalog of human depravity. It begins dealing, as we've noted in chapter 1, with the depravity of the pagan world, but uh, that will then spread out until the net is big and broad enough to scoop every single one of us up in it, so that at the end the Apostle Paul will say, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is without excuse. You know, when you go to a doctor, you, uh, in order to get an accurate diagnosis of the problem as a patient, you need to describe your symptoms to him, right? You don't go in there and uh, say, I don't feel good. And he said, well, tell me about it. And you say, well, you guess. Just look at me and guess. You uh, describe your symptoms and you describe them in as much detail as you can to try to help him to arrive at an accurate diagnosis. And when he arrives at that accurate diagnosis, um, you want him to tell you what it is, right? Pretending that you don't have cancer does not make cancer go away. You need to know the extent of the problem. And the problem that we're dealing with here is a very deadly disease that is a terminal disease. It is called sin. It has infected every single one of us. What happened in the fall of Adam and Eve? Exactly what did happen when they took of that fruit of which they were forbidden to take in that act of disobedience? What happened to them and to the rest of us who followed after them? How uh, extensively has Adam's sin infected humanity? You know... um, To use an illustration, when Adam sinned, it was as if the human race stepped over the edge of a cliff and began to rappel down into a deep, dark ravine. As they traveled down the face of the cliff, the sunlight grew dimmer, the air grew fouler, and uh, the... uh, Depravity grew thicker. And they descended so far down into that cliff they could see the sunlight no longer. 
strangely enough, they began to like it down there. And that's where the unredeemed person resides, down in the bottom of a deep, dark ravine. The section before us this morning in Romans 1 lays out how deep and dark that ravine really is. Beginning in verse 21 and running through the end of chapter 1, we have what I'm calling the fourfold fall of man. Now, don't get nervous. We're not going to try to go all the way to 32 this morning. okay? But I want to at least take a couple of minutes here and show you how this whole section ties together. There is a fourfold fall of man. And the reason that we need to see this is so that we can understand just how deep and dark the descent into depravity has become. This fourfold fall affects man first intellectually. Man has fallen intellectually. And that is the topic in verse 21 that we're going to address this morning. Man has fallen intellectually. Verses 22 and 23 deal with the fact that man has fallen spiritually. Man has fallen spiritually. Verses 24 and 20 through 27 detail that man has fallen sexually, the sexual fall of man. And verses 28 through 32 show us that man has fallen socially. It is the social fall of man. So we have the intellectual, spiritual, sexual, and social fall of man. Every aspect of his life and being has been affected by the fall. That is the doctrine, beloved, of total depravity. We are not as bad as we could be, but we are as bad off as we could be. There is no aspect of us that has not been tainted with sin. Let me uh, read for you here verse 21, which we're going to look at in some detail this morning. Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the intellectual fall of man that the apostle is dealing with here. And you remember from last week, verses 19 and 20, we noted that Paul says there has been a real self-disclosure of God. God has made Himself known to all humanity through His creation. We call it general revelation, you'll remember. And Paul lays out for us in 19 and 20 the fact that the evidence is not just abundantly clear, but it has been received, it has been understood, and then it has been suppressed or held down or rejected by all of fallen humanity. And there's a consequence that comes, it's actually a series of consequences that come to all of humanity because of this of this uh, suppression of the truth of God. You cannot turn away from the light into darkness without it having consequences. And the consequences are this fourfold fall that I just outlined for you. So there is a very logical transition 
a thought going on here. Verse 18, remember that God is revealing His wrath right against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. How do they suppress it? Because the evidence of what of God's uh, existence in creation and His His eternal power, divine nature, verse 20, has been received, has been understood, and then has been suppressed. That brings about the consequences. The consequences of sin. And the first is the intellectual fall of man in verse 21. Now, the subject we're dealing with, theologians call the noetic effect of sin. Noetic. N-O-E-T-I-C. has nothing to do with an ark and a flood. Okay? comes from a Greek word nous, which means mind or understanding or reasoning. It is the effect of sin upon the intellect of all humanity. When Adam plunged himself and the race into sin, as I said, every aspect of his being and ours as his descendants has been touched by sin. That's our bodies. And those of us who worked hard yesterday know about that. Okay, The body has been touched by sin. That is, that it is susceptible to disease and to, and to fatigue and to wearing out and eventually to death. So the body has been touched by sin. The soul has been touched by sin because the soul no longer desires God. It no longer desires a relationship with God. But it is not just body and soul. It is also the mind. The mind has been touched by sin. It has not been excluded from this fall. The effect of sin upon the mind is the effect upon our ability to reason and think. So just like going to a doctor who tells you that you have a disease, the proper question to ask is, Doc, how bad off is it? How bad am I? What is it that I am to expect? Well, let's find out what Paul says. He says, man has fallen intellectually. And his descent is marked by three characteristics. I have them for you on your handout this morning if you might want to fish that out to uh, follow along. There are three characteristics that mark the intellectual descent of man, the fall of man in his intellect. They come from verse 31. It begins there, or 21 rather, it begins there and it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give Thanks. The first characteristic is ingratitude. Ingratitude. The first effect of the fall upon the intellect of man is ingratitude. It is a reasonable thing to expect people to honor God and to give Him thanks based on what He has done for each and every person. God is the one who provides the good gifts. And therefore, we should give Him thanks, we should honor Him, we should glorify Him for who He is and for what He has done. The verb translated here for us in verse 21, uh, honor, in a margin note in your Bible probably says glorify because it could be translated either way. Um, Doxazo in the Greek, we, we uh, get the noun uh, doxa or doxology eventually uh, spins out from this, but it means in the verb form originally to appear or to seem. The noun is translated to have an opinion. An opinion. 
So put together the concept that's being uh, that's being expressed here by glorifying or honoring God is that a, a person's opinion of something or someone as it appears to them is how they glorify or honor that person or that thing. So that's how the word etymologically comes about. Kings are said to possess glory because as people look to the king and have an opinion about the king and his greatness and his splendor, then they have a favorable opinion towards him and then they honor him or they glorify him. That's the idea here. So to honor God... To glorify God is to recognize Him for who He really is. And then to have a good opinion about Him because of that. Well, who can glorify God as He deserves? Based on what we have learned from verses 19 and 20, not us. That is, not us unredeemed. For the unredeemed man has no interest in God, right? Now what the apostle says, they know he's there, but they have no interest in him. They suppress the knowledge that they have. They hold it back. They hold it down. They do not glorify God as he rightly deserves. Beyond that, there is a, a debt of gratitude, right? Even though they knew God, verse 21, they didn't honor or glorify him as God. That is, they didn't have the favorable opinion towards him that they should have, nor did they give thanks. Nor did they give thanks. We owe a debt of gratitude to our Creator, every single one of us. We all owe a debt of gratitude. The Scripture says that the uh, sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God mercifully grants long life to people. He gives them happy marriages, numerous children, Health, wealth, food, clothing, shelter, and on and on and on, right? God provides, and He does so indiscriminately to all of mankind. How easy gospel evangelism would be, wouldn't it? If only the believers enjoyed these blessings and benefits. But that's not the way it is. That's not how God has set up the world. God showers His goodness upon all people indiscriminately. Even those who would shake their fist in His face. He gives them the very breath for them to be able to voice the blasphemies that they'll throw back into His face. The Apostle says we owe a debt of gratitude. Yet the natural man is characterized by ingratitude. The unredeemed person is an ungrateful person. One writer said that we as a race are the ungrateful biped. The ungrateful biped. In his commentary on Romans, James Montgomery Boyce asked this question. He says, why is ingratitude so dangerous? What is so dangerous about not being thankful? The answer to that question is, is that ingratitude is a willful unawareness of the most basic facts about God. Did you get that? It is a willful unawareness. That's what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. He says that the, the knowledge is there and it is understood and it's been received and it has been rejected. So there is a willfulness going on here. An unawareness of the most basic facts about God. 
me just remind you this morning. Do you have food in your stomach in the last 24 hours? It is a gift of God. Right? It is a gift of God. Are there clothes on your back? Shoes on your feet? Do you have a job? Friends? A home to live in? The ability to walk? Sleep? To renew your strength, right? Someone who loves you, the ability to express love back to someone else, even to be very alive, just to be alive. These are all gifts from God, and yet how ungrateful we are. Ungratefulness, beloved, is the very essence of unbelief. It is the essence of unbelief. That fact is repeatedly demonstrated for us in the Old Testament when you think of the nation of Israel and her wilderness wanderings, right? God showered His mercy and favor upon the people and all they did was moan and groan, right? Oh, I wish we had. And you fill in the blank. Unbelief and ingratitude are woven together. You know, Oz Guinness says the following, I quote, Rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. The one who can't say thank you. Though it is the proper response of a person who has been redeemed from this spiritual darkness by Christ. Is it not a thankful heart? A thankful heart, the Apostle says, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13.15, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. To live without a thankful heart is to live in the darkness of your fallen humanity. To live with a heart overflowing with gratitude is to live as a redeemed person of Christ. Do you ever think about why do we say grace before a meal? I mean, what's the big deal? The big deal is an expression and an acknowledgement and an understanding that the meal you're about to receive has been provided for you by your Creator and that you are indebted to Him. Gratitude is to mark the believing heart. Ingratitude marks the unbelieving heart. People should, verse 21, give thanks to God. They should honor Him. They should glorify Him. They should have a good opinion of Him. They should know Him for who He is, and yet they don't. This characterizes the intellectual fall of man. Secondly, insanity. The second characteristic of the intellectual fall of man is insanity. Insanity. Instead of glorifying and being grateful to God, Paul says that the fallen man becomes futile in their speculations, right? They became futile in their speculations. This word translated futile here, it is only used one time here. This is the only place it's used in the New Testament. And the word has the idea of uselessness, nothingness, 
being disconnected or being devoid of reality. Thus, my choice of the word insanity. Right? Separated from reality. Do not understand reality. Disconnected from reality. That is the plight of the unredeemed heart. It is insane. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word translated here, futile, is used most significantly in connection with the sin of idolatry. It's used in connection with the sin of idolatry. And, and idols are called empty or vain. And what that is communicating is that there's nothing there. There is no reality associated with the idol. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? That is, that they became devoid of reality. They followed after an idol. And an idol is nothing but a piece of wood, a chunk of stone, or an intricate philosophical philosophy composed by some pointy-headed unbeliever that amounts to a pile of nothing. Nothingness. Idols are empty. They are vain. People pretend that they are gods, but they are no gods at all. According to Paul, this loss of touch with reality is seen most clearly in the thinking of people. Verse 21 again, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation." speculations this word translated for us here speculations has in the new testament a distinctly pejorative sense that is that it is a distinctly bad kind of thing it's translated in mark 15:19 for out of the heart come evil thoughts same word murders adulteries fornications thefts false witness slanders Luke 5.22, but Jesus, aware of their reasoning, same word, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? What the Apostle Paul says here in verse 21 of Romans 1 is that the unredeemed man has become empty or devoid of reality in their thinking. In their thinking. When... A person rejects the revelation of God. All that is left for them is to rearrange their errors. And that's what the unbelieving mind does. It just continually rearranges error. The psalmist says in Psalm 36, verse 9, In your light we see light. That is a significant verse. In your light, we see light. That is, when we see, we see the world through your eyes, in your light, then we see it truly and correctly. When we ignore your explanation for the world and create our own through a futile speculation, we end up with vanity and darkness. Now, Paul is not saying that unbelievers don't know anything at all, okay? He's not saying that they don't know anything at all. What he is saying is that they don't know anything truly. They don't know anything truly. That is, they don't know it as God knows it. And what they do know becomes an excuse for their unbelief. 
Let me read you a quote here. To know something is to know how it relates to other things. To know what it is for, where it is from, what obligations I have concerning it, what is its worth, what it signifies. The non-Christian scientist will give intellectual assent to all sorts of truth statements, but he will not be able to provide any ultimate explanation of the facts in terms of these relationships. The more explanation he gives, the more it will be seen that his interpretation runs counter to God's. That is, the unbelieving scientist will know a fact, but he cannot explain the reality of the fact. Let me give you an example of this. As any scientist knows, apples come from trees and are normally good for eating. But where do apple trees come from? Ultimately, the secular scientist will say that trees are a product of evolution. That is chance. In other words, apple trees are not designed by God. Thus, for the non-believer, apples are creator-denying apples. Right? To really understand apples is to deny the biblical concept of God, they would tell you. And they will use apples to prove that the God of Scripture does not exist and that each apple is an evidence against God. Ultimately, the non-existence of God becomes part of the definition of an apple. An apple, right, for the unbeliever, is the living proof that God doesn't exist. But for a believer, the apple is what? It is the proof of God. So we're looking at the same red sphere in our hand, but we're not talking about the same thing. Hang with me here. Stars. Stars, when humanity looks to the stars, what do they see? For the unbelieving mind, the stars are evidence of billions of years of evolutionary chance. Right? One guy made a fortune with a TV show talking about billions and billions of years. Right? It is the evidence of the non-existence of God, yet we know that the stars really are what? Declaring the glory of God. We're looking at the same thing, but we're not seeing the same thing. Because for the unbeliever, the billions of stars out there are devoid of reality. They are just points of light. But for the believer, he understands who put the stars there. What are the stars there for? They're to display the glory of God. Therefore, we rightly understand stars the unbeliever doesn't. Why is murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? An unbeliever cannot give you an answer. Not a real answer. He'll try to talk about, well, you ought to be nice to people. Well, why? Why? We know murder is wrong because God has told us it is wrong. So we understand ethics as God has established ethics. That is, we see them truly and rightly. The unbeliever's ethics are devoid of reality. They are empty. They are insane. I can remember almost 20 years ago, I was attending a banking seminar at the Wharton Business School in Philadelphia. 
This was right after a number of their graduates had been put in prison for various stock frauds. And so as part of the educational program that I was part of, they included a class in business ethics. And I remember attending that class and the professor stood up there and he waxed eloquent for about two hours trying to tell and convince the class that business ethics were good for business. And that's why we should be ethical. And I sat there and I didn't challenge him, but I thought to myself, well, that's not always true. Actually, to be an unethical businessman could be very profitable. So why must you be ethical in business? Because we understand we serve an ethical God. right? That's the reality of the world. Over here, it's ethics. Devoid of reality. Free-floating. Built on some flimsy reasoning. The unbeliever is insane in his thinking. He's futile in his speculations. As Cornelius Van Til said, the great Westminster apologist, the unbeliever can count, but he cannot account for his counting. He knows that two plus two equals four, but he cannot tell you why. Ingratitude, insanity, and finally, darkness. Darkness characterizes the unbelieving heart. Professing or futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. To turn from the light of revelation is to turn into darkness. The heart in Scripture is a broad term. It is a very broad term. It denotes man's inward hidden self. With regard to his thinking, to his, to his will, to his feeling. But the use here of the adjective translated in the New American Standard foolish, verse 21, asunatos in the Greek, could also be translated dull, uncomprehending, or void of understanding. And I think that actually would be a better translation. It is the dull heart that was darkened. It is the uncomprehending heart that was darkened. It is the heart that is void of understanding that was darkened. And what that does for us is it indicates that the Apostle Paul is still talking about the intellect. He's got the mind in view here. And he's talking about the consequences of rejecting the revelation of God upon the human mind. He says over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Man's heart has become darkened because he has refused to recognize God for who he really is. Again, Paul is not disparaging the use of logic and reason. Don't misunderstand that. He builds this whole epistle using logic and reason. But it is sanctified logic and reason. It is redeemed logic and reason. But what he does do for us here is he provides us with a sober reminder that sin has debased every single part of you. Every one of you sitting here this morning, myself included, we have all been debased in our mind by our sin. Our ability to think has been messed up. Quote by uh, C.E.B. Granfield uh, in his fabulous commentary on Romans, he says, Therefore, 
human reason cannot be appealed to as a true and final arbiter of objective judgment. The fallen man's thought processes are deflected, distorted, and debilitated. That would have been a good outline. By the egotism of the thinker. For example, the scholar's inability to criticize his own argument in theories as rigorously as he does those of others. Right? The inability to analyze your own thoughts. Evidence. The level of corruption that has infected your thinking. The human mind is a religious vacuum. If truth flows out, error flows in. This ignorance is a result of choice, isn't it? They refused their Creator. What that means, beloved, is that redemption requires a moral conversion, not more information. Redemption requires a moral conversion. There needs to be a change of the will. If you merely pile on the facts in support of Christianity, the unredeemed mind will take every single fact you give them and will rearrange it to suit his own presupposition of unbelief. You cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. The mind of man is fallen. It is characterized by ingratitude, by insanity, and by darkness. So what are the implications of all of this? Let's explore a few together. Because of the depth and the severity of our intellectual fall, we must be renewed intellectually by Christ. We must be renewed in our minds. Chapter 12 of this epistle, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we still need to be undergoing a transformational process up here. At the moment of your conversion, all of that Sinful thinking didn't disappear. It still resides within and it needs to be cleaned up. So there is a constant need to renew the mind. Second implication of all of this is that no human being is intellectually neutral. Jesus said you are either for me or you are what? You are against me. You are either committed to a Christian worldview or you are not. There is no middle ground. This, by the way, has huge implications for our educational choices. Huge implications. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, when a disciple is fully mature, he will be just like his teacher. Choose your educators well. Some people choose to do that through Christian education a Christian schooling environment. Others choose to do it in a homeschooling environment. Others choose to enter into the public arena 
a public schooling environment. But it doesn't matter whether it's a home school, Christian school, or public school. As mothers and fathers, we are ultimately responsible before God for the discipleship of the minds of our children. Remember, their minds are not neutral. They must be captured for Christ. Third implication, we are only in our right mind when we think God's thoughts after Him. If we are not thinking the way God is thinking, we are insane. That's why it always cracks me up when they use an insanity defense in criminal cases. I would say by definition, it is insane to go against your Creator. But what that means is that we have to develop a Christian worldview. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the only way to do this is through massive infusions of biblical truth. The only way to do it is through massive infusions of biblical truth. People who do not read their Bibles, people who do not read good theology, are going to be easily captivated by their sinful thinking and emotions. Yes, they are a new creature in Christ, but all of that baggage has been carried with them, and so their thinking is messed up. You want to think Christ's thoughts after Him. You want to think like God thinks. You want to see reality as God sees reality. Then you must cleanse your heart and mind. And it's done through a massive infusion of the Word of God regularly. Regularly. Cannot stress it enough, beloved. If you are not reading your Bible a lot and all the time, you have no hope. You have no hope of thinking like God thinks. Fourth implication. The theory of evolution is a monstrous lie. It is a monstrous lie and represents a massive assault on the foundations of Christianity. There is no compromise with that position. And evolution has permeated this culture and all of us have drunk of its poison to one degree or another. We cannot compromise with this. We must stand up for the truth. Fifth implication. According to the flow of the argument here in chapter 1, the rejection of general revelation is the point of departure into the ravine of depravity. But it is ingratitude that is the pathway to the bottom. Ingratitude is the pathway to the bottom. Therefore, it has no place among the people of God. It has no place among us. Examine your own life. What characterizes you? Is it thankfulness or is it ingratitude? Are you a grumbler or are you a thankful person? What dominates your prayers? Is it thanksgiving and praise to God or is it a wish list of things that God must do for you? It speaks volumes about what's going on inside. You want a quick barometer of your spiritual health? Pay attention to how you pray. Pay attention to how you pray. 
The mind of man is depraved. It is sinful to the core. It is incapable of recognizing the truth and responding to it. Thus, we need the grace of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Spirit of God to come to us to open our hearts and eyes, our minds, our thinking, that we can see the beauty of Christ and then, by faith, embrace Him. Some of you sitting here this morning, maybe you have yet to do that. Maybe you have yet to embrace Jesus Christ. If you know things about Him, you're kind of attracted to Him, but you're still on the edge. You're still refusing to yield to Him. Call out to Him in prayer. Speak to the God of the universe. Beg Him to save you for Jesus' sake. Confess your belief. Let's pray. Our Father, it is hard for us to understand the depth of our own depravity. For so many times we are like a fish in a fish tank, completely surrounded by water, soaking wet and yet unaware of it. We need truth from an outside source. We need someone outside the system who can see reality for what it really is to tell us. We need the revelation of Your Word. Our Father, You have spoken through Your Word this morning. I pray that You would unite the spoken Word with believing hearts. For Your name's sake. Amen.